Father in heaven, we just thank you again for the promise of the Holy Spirit for Sabbath morning. We ask Jesus that you would speak to us, that you would minister to us. Lord, we pray by the time we leave um, this experience, we've been changed because we've encountered your word. Thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you guys hear me okay? All good? Okay, very good. How many people have their Bibles right now? Put them in the air if you have your Bibles. Okay, look at the people who didn't bring their Bibles with a very judgmental look. <laughs> it's very important when you come to church, you bring your Bible. Amen? You know, even as a pastor, I used to always think to myself, well, I'll just, you know, borrow one of the church's Bible. But friends, I want you to understand something. There's something very special about using your own Bible. Amen? It's important, and so I highly recommend you get a good Bible if you don't have one, and just make it your own. Well, you, today's message is entitled, Yesterday's Christmas. Yesterday's Christmas. You know, Ellen White says something very interesting about Christmas, and this will sort of be our launching pad for the message. This is what she says right here. The 25th of December has long been commemorated as the day of Jesus' birth. And it is not my purpose to affirm or question the propriety of celebrating this event on this day, but to dwell upon the childhood and life of our what? So she essentially says, she's a very practical woman, Ellen White is, and she says, look, you should use Christmas to dwell upon the childhood, the life of our Savior. Amen? Amen. Then notice what else she says right here. Although we do not know the exact day of Christ's birth, we would honor the sacred event. May the Lord forbid that any one of us should be so narrow-minded as to overlook the event because there is an uncertainty in regard to the exact time. You know, one thing I realized as I grew up, I grew up as a Hindu, I also come from a Sikh background, and about 17 years ago I became a Christian. But my father, who was a very devout Hindu, would oftentimes use Christmas to speak to us about Jesus. In fact, one of my very first sort of images I had about Jesus was Christmas morning. My dad turned on the TV. He sat all the kids down and he said, watch this movie about Jesus. In fact, when he brought out all the sort of Christmas ornaments, he brought out these statues of the nativity scene and he put it up there. And so we always had these kinds of images or depictions of the Christmas story. If you go into my dad's uh, closet where there was a lot of idols, you had a statue of Krishna, a statue of Ganesh, you even had a statue of Buddha, and then you had the statue of Joseph and Mary missing the baby Jesus. <laughs> but this is how I was introduced to the, the Christmas story. And uh, the more I've come to understand the Bible, the more I love the beautiful story that's been given to us in the Word of God. Amen? It's a powerful story. And it's a story, especially during the time of December, I really think we should study out. Here's the reason why. Because this may be the only time that some people are actually open to the gospel, including Hindus like my family. You know, when I first learned about these things, I thought to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to witness to my family. This is a little bit funny because my form of witnessing was trying to remove Santa Claus from my household. I thought to myself, okay, the first thing my family needs to know about Christmas is Santa Claus is fake. Now just think about that, okay? These are memoirs of a conference evangelist right here. So my little niece, she, she was just there one day. It was like December 23rd or 24th. And she's just there, 
and she's near the Christmas tree, and I walk up to her, and I give her a hard time. She loves me, and I love her. And I said these words to her. I said, what are you doing right now, Leah? And she says, I'm excited because Santa Claus is about to come down the chimney. And so I stepped in a little bit closer, and I said these words to her. I said, if a large man comes through that chimney in the middle of the night, I am going to call the police. <laughs> you know what she did? She ran off. She's like, Mom! She took off running, right? In fact, the next day I saw my little niece and she was putting out cookies, okay? And I thought to myself, all right, it's time to talk to her. So I walked up to her and I said, what are you doing with these cookies? And she said, I'm putting them out for Santa Claus and the elves. And then I leaned in a little bit closer and I said, the only one who's going to be eating those cookies is me. <laughs> she ran off again and this time my sister came yelling at me, right? But I say this, friends, because, you know, when it comes to this whole idea of the season of Christmas, we need to look at the gospel stories. Amen? And let's understand what the Bible is actually teaching about this beautiful time. Everybody, let's take our Bibles. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And it's amazing because... I love the Gospel of Luke. It's one of the most beautiful Gospels, the most beautiful depiction, I believe, of the birth of Christ. And we're going to notice some unusual context there in Luke chapter 2. Now you may think to yourself, Pastor Noel, I heard something like this before. And I love when people think like that because at the end, the Spirit really gives it to them. All right, we're going to Luke chapter 2. Let's start with verse 1. Notice the context in which Jesus Christ is born right here. This is what the Bible says right here. And it came to pass in what? Those days that a decree went out from who? Caesar Augustus that all the world should be what? Registered. Now notice this, friends, because this is such a powerful concept. Okay? When you actually study out the Old Testament, you hear about some powerful miracles. Can you name one powerful miracle in the Old Testament? Fire coming down from heaven. The parting of the what? The Red Sea, right? You can see so many powerful miracles, angels destroying armies. The walls of Jericho are falling down. And as you read the Old Testament, you're getting this sort of buildup. Something big is about to happen. You get these powerful miracles, and they're all pointing to the time in which the Savior would show up and bring redemption. But then when you actually turn to the New Testament and you look at the very chapter in which the Redeemer is born, it's perhaps one of the most unprovidential chapters of the entire Bible. In fact, it is so unusual because it doesn't match the direction of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is pointing to the power of God, the glory of God, the might of God, the deliverance of God. And then when you read chapter 2 of Luke, it's like, what? What just happened here? Let's continue reading. Notice what the Bible says right here. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from who? Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. Now, what's so interesting about that time is that Caesar Augustus was actually the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Now, there's so many unusual parallels about Caesar Augustus. What is so amazing is many of the same characteristics that were attributed to the Messiah, were actually given to Caesar Augustus. In fact, it's so interesting. There's a well-known scholar by Craig, Craig Evans. He's a New Testament scholar, and he goes through these unusual parallels of Caesar Augustus. Notice what he says right here. 
The calendrical inscription from the preen mentioned above describes the birth of Augustus. Notice this. The beginning of the good news for the what? World. Now, where have we heard that before? You hear it in the Gospels, right? Notice what else is said right here. According to Virgil, the great Roman poet, this is he whom you have, often, you have so often heard promised to you, Augustus Caesar, son of a what? God. Philo knows that Augustus was called savior and benefactor. In honor of the Roman emperors, Advent coins were struck reading, this is interesting, Adventus Augustae, the coming of Augustus. There was actually an ex-soldier who said that when his body was destroyed, cremated, that he saw essentially a kind of resurrection that took place. In fact, I was reading through one account given by um, one of the Roman historians. They were saying, talking about Caesar Augustus, and they said this. this is quite interesting. Jupiter appeared in one dream and foretold that Augustus would become the savior of his country. In fact, when you actually look at the coins that were around that time, they would say Pax Romana, or a time of Roman peace. So essentially at the time that Jesus is born, you have a human version of the Messiah who is the greatest man at that time. I mean, just think about it, friends, because this is where the whole world was focusing its attention. And it's in this context, the Messiah is born. The Messiah is born. Notice what it says right here. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of what? Nazareth into Judea, to the city of what? David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of what? David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a what? Manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I want you to hone in on something. We just sort of got a perspective of the world, and we're going somewhere with this. And now I want you to see the perspective of Joseph. Joseph was somebody who was in this very unusual circumstance. He was told by God that the son that his wife was carrying would be the great Messiah. But I want you to think now what happens next to Joseph. This is interesting. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of what? which is called Bethlehem because of the, he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary. The Bible tells us at this very inconvenient moment, a census takes place. We don't know exact reason why it could be for mere taxation. It could be for military or government purposes. We don't know exactly. But we do know something, that this was such an inconvenient moment for Joseph. I mean, just think about it. For some reason, and it's assumed by scholars, that his wife actually passed away, his first wife. And now he was betrothed to another woman who happened to be pregnant already. Now I want you to think about this. Now I want you to just sort of build this up, okay? Joseph shows up. He said, okay, I'm going to marry this woman. He finds out she's pregnant. At first, he didn't know why she was pregnant. He thought to himself, you know, I'm just going to get rid of her. No one's going to know about it. I'm not going to embarrass her. But then God tells him, guess what? This is the Messiah. And then you know what happens at that moment? You can just imagine, oh, God is coming down in human flesh. The entire Old Testament is building to this moment. Things are going to change. And do you know what happens? Joseph has to stop carpentry. He has to stop what he's doing. And now he has to travel some distance with his pregnant wife. 
I mean, friends, we're looking right now at the greatest plans of God taking place. And then this is so amazing, because as they're getting closer and closer to the end, they get to the end, what happens? There's no room at the end. By the way, friends, I want you to remember something. This is the greatest plan of God right now. This is the climax of all the providences of the Old Testament. It's building to this moment. And do you know what Joseph encounters in every part of his experience at this moment? Inconvenience. Trials. This doesn't look like the providence of God. But this was God's greatest act. You know, sometimes during Christmas, you get these gifts, and they're really packaged ugly, aren't they? You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you're just thinking to yourself, who packaged that thing, right? And then when you open it up, you're blown away. You see, when God sent his son, it wasn't packaged very well. The wrapping paper didn't look very good. But God, he gave us the greatest gift possible. And we're going somewhere with this. Let's continue reading. And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a what? Manger because there was no room for them in the what? They get to the inn and what do they find? There's no room there, right? So what's the point? The point is this, that when it seemed like God should be working in Joseph's experience, he didn't seem like he was working. When it seemed like, okay, God is going to just open so many doors, he's going to bless us in extraordinary ways, and then all of a sudden it's like one inconvenience after another inconvenience after another inconvenience after another problem after another trial after another thing keeps happening over and over and over to Joseph. Now friends, if you were to look at this chapter from a completely secular perspective, would you say, I can see God working in this? Oh yeah, I can really see the power and miracles of God displayed in this chapter. And the reality is, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it. Have you ever had those experiences where you knew God led you to something? He brought you to an event or to an experience? He led you perhaps into a new career or a new phase of your life? And then when you get into that phase, all of a sudden it's like everything falls apart. Guess what? That was Joseph's experience too. He had to stop carpentry. He had to travel a long distance. And then, get this friends, when he gets to the actual inn, there's no room there. The baby is born in a manger. And let's just take it a step further. You know when you go to Southern California, when you guys are in Southern California, I'm talking about my family lives in Orange County, another part of Southern California. I grew up in the suburbs. And my family would sort of have these kind of neighborhood rivalries with other neighbors. And they would put out this like awesome, amazing nativity set. Have you ever seen those nativity sets? I mean, they're just like life-size statues, right? And you got these beautiful depictions there. You got this very clean-looking stable. And there the baby Jesus is smiling. Mary seems to have a halo over her head. Joseph's there smiling, right? You see all the, the cows and the, the sheep apparently bowing down as well. The little drummer boy happens to be there too. The wise men show up and they're Santa Claus. Ha, 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 ha. And this is so amazing because Frosty the snowman's also there as well. 
And you got this hay that sort of sort of parsed over to the side, right? And you got this beautiful Christmas light. And we think to ourselves, oh, that's just a wonderful depiction of the way the Messiah came into this world. Friends, I want you to understand something. There was none of that. You see, when Jesus came into the world, the manger there wasn't really like the mangers that we have today. Scholars, you know, in just doing some research, it was more like a cave. And it was a cave where animals were kept. And do you know what, ha- do you know what a barn smells like, friends? I mean, what's a barn smell like? Does it smell like a bathroom after potpourri is sprayed? What's a, what's a barn smell like? Yeah, drive-by cows. How do cows smell? Right, it doesn't smell pleasant, right? Friends, I bring this up because this was not a very pleasant location. It didn't smell good. Frosty the snowman was nowhere to be found. The wise men didn't show up till a couple years later. And so you have this circumstance in which the Messiah shows up, and he's just there, he's being born, and there's Joseph, and he's thinking to himself, This is the mighty act of God. Friends, let me ask you another question. Does this look like the providence of God in this chapter? If you were to look at it very superficially, would you say, I can see the powerful deliverance of God being born in this chapter? You don't. You see, when the Messiah came into this world, he didn't come during the time of the Red Sea partying. He didn't show up during the time when there was a great reformation in Israel during the rebuilding of the temple, or when Elijah was calling down fire, do you know when the Messiah showed up? He showed up in the dearth and the filth and the inconvenience of humanity. Guess what? Our normal lives. In fact, when you actually look at the picture, it's a little bit scandalous, isn't it? Here you have Mary pregnant before they were actually married. Here you have Joseph apparently not having any kind of networking or any kind of connections in that place where he now he's thinking himself as the man who provides for his family, the only place that he has is a stinking manger. Now why am I bringing this up? I bring it up, friends, because we need to understand something about life. And you may understand it by experience, but by faith we need to understand this. Sometimes God's greatest works don't look like God's greatest works from our perspective. Sometimes the series of trials that hit us or the circumstances of inconvenience or when it seems like failure after failure after failure after failure or inconvenience after inconvenience keeps happening. You're thinking to yourself and you're tempted to believe maybe God's not part of this situation. Friends, I want you to understand something. This is exactly how the Messiah showed up. The greatest miracle in all the Bible showed up in the midst of human inconvenience and trials. In fact, I came across this powerful quote from the Spirit of Prophecy. It is so amazing right here. When we are in perplexity, perplexity, anybody know the definition of the word perplexity? That is perplexing. What a perplexing situation right now. It's pretty perplexing. No one knows what perplexity actually means. Very good. It means to be confused. Right? A time of confusion. 
When we are in perplexity, anybody ever felt confused before? Some of you are honest, right? This is interesting. When we are in perplexity, even before we, are, we open to Him our distress, He is making arrangements for our deliverance. Can you say amen to that? This is where it gets even more amazing. Our sorrow is not unnoticed. You know, when I was in school, I remember I had this circumstance where it was like, you know, God provided for me every semester. I had a good friend whose dad was a dentist. And his dad bought him a lot of things. And when it came to registration day, I remember his dad would show up, just come there, and he would pay the entire year off. He said, put it on the card and walk off. And I remember there and I was thinking to myself, I was like, God keeps putting me on like a layaway plan, you know? He provides to me for me month to month, right? You know, but I realized something during that time. God still was in charge. And it was through these trials and circumstances and these inconveniences that God was actually doing something in my own heart. This is where it gets even amazing right here. Notice what she says. He always knows much better than we do, just what is necessary for the good of his children. And he leads us as we would choose to be led if we could discern our own hearts and see our necessities and perils as what? Friends, notice what is being said right here. We are being led as if we would want to be led if we could see as God has seen. Now just think about that. We were being led as, if we, as we would want to be led if we could see the way that God sees the situation. I know for many of us that, thinks, that we think to ourselves, how could any of this, how could any of this circumstance ever make any kind of logical sense? Friends, I want us to understand something even about the book of Job. Do you know when you study out the book of Job, I mean, you look at the very first chapter. You want to know one of the best lives in all of scripture? It's actually the first few verses of Job. Job actually has a very charmed life. He's not only blessed spiritually, but financially, um, socially, relationally. He's the greatest man of the East, right? And so you get this sort of runway in the book of Job that Job is a good man. Even God says, hey, no one is like Job. He's just an upright. Then all these bad things happen to Job. And it's very interesting because at the, during the middle time of the book of Job, his friends show up. And his friends, by the way, you don't want friends like the friends of Job. They are some of the worst friends possible. Because they essentially try to figure out why he's suffering and lead the blame right back to Job. And Job essentially gets frustrated with them, right? And it's so interesting because when God actually shows up in the book of Job, God begins to ask Job a series of questions. Now, there's something to understand about the kinds of questions that Job was asked by God. They were questions that had to do with earth, questions that had to do with childbirth, questions that had to do with the animal kingdom, with the plant kingdom, with the solar system. And essentially what God was saying to Job was this, Job, if you can't understand the deep things of this earth, how could you understand right now the deep things of heaven? Because, friends, the reason why we don't actually have clear, direct answers to the problem of suffering is because the problem is much bigger than our planet. Therefore, the answers are also much bigger than the planet. We're given a glimpse. 
We're given a glimpse in the book of Job, but God actually never speaks to Job and says to Job, by the way, Job, I want you to understand something. Satan was challenging the government of God throughout the entire universe. Your faithfulness actually saved us. Saved the universe from falling in to the same problem that Lucifer had. Job was never given that insight. But do you know Job said something in the middle of the book of Job that was quite amazing? He said these words. He said, Oh, that my words were written down. Do you know who wrote down the book of Job? Do you know who inspired Moses? The Holy Spirit. There was no one during the time of Job that simply recorded or documented Job's life. And Job died not understanding the big picture of everything. But years later, the Holy Spirit would inspire Moses to write down his life. Do you know what's going to happen when Job gets to heaven? He's going to understand that his faithfulness during a time of suffering and a time of inconvenience actually kept other worlds from rebelling and going into the exact same experience that Lucifer had. I mean, you begin to think about that this whole issue was much bigger than we fully understand. And so when we're dealing with circumstances or trials or inconveniences, friends, I want you to understand something. I'm not like someone who's like, oh, I don't know what that's all about. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to not sense the future, not see clearly. I know what it's like when you're just there and you're thinking to yourself, man, why is it that one thing after another thing keeps happening to me? And it feels like all of these obstacles are against me. Friends, but faith looks over those things. And you know what jo Joseph understood? Joseph kept having, you know, he put his faith in God and he kept persisting, even though these things didn't make sense in his life. In fact, that's why the Bible says Joseph was a just man. He put his faith in God, even though these trials weren't making, wasn't, wasn't very clear to him at that time. God wants us to trust him. Amen? You know, and I really believe, especially in the year 2017, our world is going to face greater and greater suffering. How that suffering comes about, I'm not sure. I don't know what to say to you. But you sense it coming. And Ellen White says, there's wounds that are going to come upon this world. Not even the balm of Gilead will be able to heal. A time of suffering and pain. And God wants His people to be in the midst of that, providing comfort and hope. Amen? By the way, do you know what book was written to give us sufficient answers to the problem of evil? Anybody know? Which book was written to give us sufficient answers to the problem of evil? The Bible's a good one, right? That's a good one. Anybody else? The Great Controversy. It's actually in the introduction written by Ellen White. She says, this book was written to give us sufficient. She doesn't mean all the answers to the problem of evil, but that's the only place where she actually says problem of evil. Sufficient answers to the problem of evil. Okay, the book was written for what purpose? So we at least have some kind of direction with the problem of suffering. Now, what's my point? When you open up that book, what is the very first thing you are introduced to? Some of you are checking your little iPhones right now. That's good. <laughs> you're introduced to the fall of Jerusalem, but do you know what you're introduced in that chapter to? 
Jesus weeping. Now notice this. If this book was written to give us sufficient answers to the problem of evil, what is the very first thing that we're introduced to? That God weeps too. That God is brokenhearted. You know, when we're trying to give people help and comfort when they're going through times of suffering, do you know the very first thing we should be introducing them to? Is that there's a God who understands what brokenness is all about. Because when you actually look how he came into this world, he came in the midst of that. Amen? Let's continue on with this story. The Bible then tells us something interesting. It puts sort of a a pause on this scene right here where Joseph and Mary are right there in the manger and you can just imagine that sort of dark, gloomy moment. Here they are there and they're the, you know, stinky animals. I'm not sure if there was animals, but at least we know it probably smelled like animals, right? And you can just imagine it's not like people clean up barns on a regular basis, much then back then in Jerusalem where you actually had these caves. It's not like, oh, let's go there and let's clean these things up every single week, right? I mean, that doesn't happen. It was filth. And so there's sort of a pause that gets placed on that experience. And then the Bible then shifts our perspectives, not just from the world's perspective, from Joseph's perspective, but now to an angelic perspective. Notice what the Bible says right here in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. It says these words. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a what? Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now here they're just building up this whole introduction. You're about to see the Messiah. You're about to see the Christ child. This is so amazing. Angels have come from heaven for this great uh, message. And so you can imagine these shepherds right there shivering, frightened, but at the same time in awe. Notice what it said right here. This is quite amazing. And this will be the sign to you. Here's the indication, the evidence. You will find a babe Wrapped in what? Swaddling cloths, lying in a what? Now you think, okay, what's the big deal? The big deal is the response of the entourage that angel brought. And suddenly, do you know what the word suddenly means? Suddenly, yes. Okay, very good. (laughs) And suddenly there was with an angel what? A multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying what? Now I want you to notice when they react. It's when that angel, he begins to say, hey look, you're going to find the Messiah. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths. He's in a manger. And as soon as he says those words, that phrase, all of a sudden it was like this heavenly choir right there just burst out singing. Now friends, I'm going to ask you a question. Why at that moment was this sort of urge to sing? This doesn't sound like they just, okay, when I say the words swaddling cloths, it's time for you to sing. One, two. This sounds like this was something that was just by impulse. These angels begin to sing. 
It was at these, the very moment that these words were being told to these shepherds, all of a sudden these angels, almost in kind of an uncontrollable moment, just said, we, we just got to sing to God. And they began to praise God. And I want you to notice, what words did they say? Glory to God in the what? Okay, what was told to the shepherds? You just have to look right there. Right there, right? This is interesting. Notice the irony here. You will find, right, in the city of David, the Savior, right? Who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign. You'll find a babe. And then watch what he says next. Wrapped in swaddling cloths. And then he doesn't stop there. He then says, lying in a manger. At the very moment this angel was pointing out the condescension, the humility of God, the praise that comes in response says glory to God in the highest. As they were talking and articulating the humility and the condescension of Christ, their response was a praise, the highest kind of praise in the entire universe. Because there's something that heaven values, friends. It's humility. Humility is currency in heaven. Amen? Amen. You know, when we think about heaven, by the way, you know what we think of when we say, yeah, Jesus came from heaven? We're essentially saying Jesus came from the sky. Yeah, Jesus came from the sky. Right? In fact, when we talk about it, we'll say, yeah, Jesus came from somewhere there, right? But do you know something that these angels understand? They understand what the universe is really like. They understand how big the universe really is. You see, to these humans that heard it, they just thought, oh yeah, the, the Messiah, he's come down. But these angels who understood what the condescension really was, understood it from a whole new perspective because they actually have a greater understanding of the, the bigness of this universe. And for them, the condescension is far greater. From us, we're just like, yeah, it's somewhere in the sky, maybe over there in that star system right there. Really not sure. But these angels who've traveled throughout the universe, who've been to the very throne of God, understand how great is the glory of God. And so they also understand how great is the condescension of God. And so at the very moment that they're talking about these, you can just imagine these shepherds are just like, uh, these angels are like, you're going to find the Messiah. You're going to find a babe. And then he says, he's wrapped in human clothes. And he's in a manger. It was like at that moment, these angels that were there. I mean, I just sometimes picture, you know, think in my mind, you know, probably that head angel. We don't know who it was. Maybe it was Gabriel. We don't know. He's probably telling all the other angels, don't sing yet until I'm done talking about this. 
Because he understands these angels love to praise God, right? And the glory of God is seen in the condescension of God. And so as he's talking, right? I just sometimes picture this one angel just shaking. Like, just, you know, he's off there in the choir. It's like the guy that starts before the piano starts, right? You know what I'm talking about, Prodeo, right? And so as he's talking about the condescension, the sacrifice of Christ, all of a sudden these angels, they can't contain themselves anymore. And they begin to sing and praise God. And the greatest, this is so interesting, this beautiful song, by the way, we're told something special about the song that they sang. Interesting. Notice what it said right here. The heavenly messengers had quieted their fears. He had told them, messenger had quieted their fears. He had told them how to find Jesus. Then the joy and glory could no longer be be hidden. The whole plain was lighted up with the bright shining of the host of God. Earth was hushed and heaven stooped to listen to the song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Oh, that today the human family could recognize that song. The declaration then made, notice these key words, the note then struck will swell to the close of time and resound to the ends of the earth. When the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings, that song will be re-echoed by the voice of a great what? Oh, it's going to be sung again, friends. It's going to be sung again. As the voice of many waters saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. We're told that this song will be sung again, but not by angels, but by the great redeemed family of God. Friends, this is so amazing when you begin to think about this great condescension. You know, part of eternity, by the way, we're going to understand something about God. You know what we're going to understand? Part of eternity. How infinite is infinity? Do you know that? Like, we're really going to understand that. In fact, we're probably not going to understand that, but we're going to understand that. I mean, we're going to understand eternity's a long time, isn't it, right? But what we're going to understand is that the infinite God, the more we come to understand Him, the greater He is. Right? So part of eternity is understanding the glory and the greatness and how big God really is. I mean, we really don't have a a real conception on how big God really is. Part of eternity will be to investigate how great, how magnificent, how immense is this being. Now, what is my point? As we understand more and more throughout eternity, the bigness of God, the greatness of God, the magnitude of who God is, greater and greater and greater and greater will be the condescension. Greater and greater will be this idea. Wait a minute. He didn't just leave some local planet to come here. He didn't just leave some star base or whatever. He left the very throne of the universe. Part of eternity will be understanding the greatness of God and in effect, the condescension of God. And greater and greater will be the thought of how immense was the sacrifice for you 
and for me. We're going to get to heaven one day and the angel, we're going to say, hey, by the way, where's earth? And you know what the angel's going to say? All right, let me just show you this star map right here. You see this dot right here? Oh, is that earth? No, that's the Milky Way galaxy. Where's earth? You actually can't see it. Are you, are you hearing what I'm saying right now? I mean, because this is so important for us to understand. This is what angels were grasping. They were understanding, you know, in some way. And by the way, even angels had a beginning point. They had a starting point. So even they don't fully understand how big God really is. And part of eternity will be their understanding and their investigation. And that's why it even says in 1 Peter, they love to look into the gospel. Because even they are starting to glimpse more and more. The big, how big God really is. And part of eternity will be sort of a, a revelation of how immense and powerful and loving the God of the universe is. To leave all of that. To come down to a planet. Not during a time of Israel's glory. Not during a time of Israel's victories. God showed up during a time of Israel's defeat. And you may feel defeat today, or you've had the spirit of defeat for a long time. And one thing I have sensed over and over again with God's people is that the spirit of defeat is contagious. God showed up during that time. He showed up and he gave the greatest gift possible. A gift that brought redemption to you and to me. The greatest providences were wrapped in trials and circumstances and obstacles. But God was doing his greatest work during that time. And friends, right now I, I just leave with you this thought and that is this, that God has given us the greatest Christmas present. Amen? And it's a gift that keeps on giving. Right? We have a God who loves us, who understands us, who understands our lives, who stepped right in the middle of it and can sympathize with each and every one of us. Take hope and take courage in the example of our Savior. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you again. Thank you, Lord, for the plan of redemption. Thank you for the everlasting gospel. And Lord, thank you for your thoughts towards us. Father in heaven, I just pray that each person would recognize how much you really love them, God. And how even in the midst of trial and suffering, Lord, you are still very present. Lord, may we go into this season and bring the same hope and encouragement to others. Thank you, Father, for hearing prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.